Well, good morning, church family, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, I want to extend to you a, a warm welcome. Uh, my name is Randy, and I'm uh, the senior minister here at the church, and we're just so happy to get to worship together with you. Um, Christmas is about the best news ever. Amen. For the mystery of godliness is great. God appeared in a body. It's the best news ever. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Titus chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Hebrews chapter 2. Christmas is about the best news ever. God appeared in a body. God put on flesh. God grew up in Mary and Joseph's home. God walked the dusty streets of Nazareth. God grew hungry. God sweat. The miracle of Christ, fully God, fully man. And as such, he displayed otherworldly love for us. Christmas is about the best news ever. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And Christmas is about the worst news ever. You see, there's a reason why God had to put on flesh. He didn't merely come to earth on a book tour. He came on a search and rescue operation. He came to repair the brokenness of this fallen world. And there was no other way. If there was another way, he would not have needed to come. But our root problem on earth today is not financial or political or educational or familial. If that's all it were, God would not have needed to come. You see, our biggest problem is not outside of ourselves. It's inside ourselves. It's in our hearts. I mean, you can leave a job. You can leave a relationship. And you can leave a church. But you can't leave yourself. You take yourself with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, there you are. Along with your heart. And the prophet Jeremiah said that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? My most serious problem is that instead of wanting to serve the king, I want to be the king. And that leads us to Herod. This, this rascal of the Christmas story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2. You'll find that on page 807 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please avail yourselves to it and put your name in it, take it home as a gift from this church family. In our Advent reading, moments ago, we heard... From two verses I want to repeat, Matthew 2, 13 and 16, 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel give us uh, different perspectives on Christmas. Luke's gospel gives us angels and shepherds and songs and glory to God in the highest. Matthew gives us a massacre. There's no white Christmas in Matthew's gospel. It's blood-soaked. Sobbing mothers will never see their baby boys grow up. Broken-hearted fathers have no male heirs. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie? Not in Matthew. No, Matthew, it's more like a little town of Bethlehem made miserable by the birth of Jesus with mothers wailing over the loss of innocent life. That's Matthew's version of Bethlehem. You know, Matthew 2 reminds us that Advent is a season of waiting in darkness. I have to say this because some of you may come here today and said, I, I, this sounds like a depressing message. You're right. For a little while. For a little while. But these verses call us to get real. These verses call us to be transparent and to be vulnerable. And, you know... Sometimes it's just not enough to say, everything's going to be okay, come on. No, everything's not okay. In Matthew chapter 2, not everything's okay. Advent is a season that takes place in the dark. And some of you right now are in the dark. And I just want to acknowledge that. This chapter dismisses any notion of Pollyanna Christmas cheer. You remember Eleanor Porter's 1913 pre-World War I novel, Pollyanna? Pollyanna Whittier played the, she played the glad game. She tried to find something to be happy about even in the darkest, bleakest situations. Well, nobody's playing the glad game in Bethlehem. And these verses acknowledge that Christmas... For some of us, it's just really difficult. And these verses invite us to name our sorrows. It's the first year without a loved one. It's Christmas dinner with hard-to-love relatives. It's family members who sing joy to the world but won't talk to one another. 
It's a season that triggers intense mourning from addiction, depression, grief, and then you feel guilty because you feel sad. And Matthew chapter 2 gives us permission to grieve. Matthew 2 allows us to lament lost longings. Matthew 2 tells us to pay attention to the pain of waiting in the darkness. And it comforts those who have been wounded by those who love the darkness. That is Herod. Herod, this puppet king of Israel, propped up by the Roman Empire. He wasn't even full Hebrew. He was half Hebrew, half Edomite. That is, he was from the, the lineage of Esau. He was appointed by the Roman Senate and given the title king of the Jews. And he ruled for 33 years. And he was a shrewd character. He knew that Israel was at the intersection of a major trade route. He knew that land was agriculturally prosperous. Olive oil, wine, dates were to Israel what corn and soybean are here to Illinois. Herod made huge profits off trade, and he poured those profits along with the crushing taxation into some of the most magnificent building projects of his day. And you can go to the Holy Land and, and see remnants of those building projects. I'm thinking of the fortress of Masada. That's a, that's a palace a thousand feet high. I mean, it's spectacular. And then there's the fortress of Antonia, which overlooked the temple compound. And then the port city of Caesarea. That's what it looks like today. But an artist's rendition gives us this magnificent um, maritime parking lot where uh, trade ships would come in through a special gate. And it was just magnificent. Brought, brought to Israel by Herod the Great. And then there was Herodium. Herodium, this, this magnificent other palace that he had <laughs> after constructing the hill that you see there he then put the palace on top of the hill I mean there's more archaeological evidence that Herod gives us than Julius Caesar and Herod's most ambitious project was the rebuilding of the temple absolutely magnificent that uh, that's a model of first century Israel. That's 16 acres to scale. It was just huge. And this is what the first century historian Josephus had to say about this. The sanctuary had everything that could amaze either the mind or the eyes. Overlaid all round with stout plates of gold, the first rays of the sun, it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they looked straight at the sun. To strangers it seemed like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzling white. It was magnificent. Herod the Great who was also ruthless and paranoid in any suspicion that anyone was after his throne, he eliminated that person. He had his wife killed. 
and his mother-in-law killed. His three sons, his three sons, he got wind of an insurrection from them, and he had them strangled. Augustus Caesar, the emperor of Rome, once quipped, I'd rather be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, magi appear. And they come to Herod. Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod, Herod, king of the Jews. I thought I was the king of the Jews. I thought I was the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? And, and please, you know, it's not like Herod's 35 years of age and he's got a career ahead of him. He's going to be dead in a few years, but he is so hungry and corrupted with power. He's paranoid. And these verses ooze irony. For the Magi asked, where is he, that they, that they might worship him? Herod asked, where is he, that he might kill him? And all the irony. The outsiders have come to make much of the Messiah, while the royal insider wants to assassinate the Messiah. And in still another twist, Herod turns to the word of God. Matthew 2, 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, if you're a student of Old Testament history, you would know that an Israelite king was required to make his own copy of the Bible so that he might know the word. Not this Herod, uh uh He hired it out. Turning to the Word of God, not to study it, not to be changed by it, not to pray, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things written in your law. No, Herod uses the Word as a radar detection device to search and destroy this rival king. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And in verse 8, Herod says to the Magi, will you go and you find him, and when you do, let me know so that I may worship him too. Liar. Herod feigns devotion, and when he realizes that the Magi aren't coming back, he sends soldiers, kill the boys to and under, take no chances. Now, who does that sound like? Yeah, Pharaoh. Pharaoh and Herod. Exodus 2, Matthew 2. Christ's birth unleashed the unchecked power of a threatened puppet king who afflicted the vulnerable. And one author noted that, you know, this depth of depravity doesn't originate, doesn't originate from the marginalized. In other words, defenseless, powerless, impoverished people do not have the resources to sin at this level. I mean, this, this sort of depravity originates from those in power. Evil has an administrative structure. 
All too often we call evil chaotic and random because it's so scary. But the truth is, pure evil calculates a person's worth and then exacts its own sentence on human life. True evil has administrative roots. Evil is organized. And that's what we see here. And that's why the soldiers weren't there very long. In a village of 2,000, there would have been perhaps 20 to 30 victims. But one other scholar, Paul Meyer, noted that the scene of mothers madly trying to hush their crying infants so as not to be discovered, only to have them snatched out of their arms by Herod's soldiers, thrown to the floor, run through with swords. The whole thought would send bristles of shock into the Christmas story. Without a question, Herod emerges as the monster of Christmas. And then this prophecy in Matthew 2.18 a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation Rachel weeping for her children she refused to be comforted because they are no more Rachel Rachel the wife of Jacob whose name God changed to Israel she represents all of the Hebrew mothers Rachel Weeping. Voices heard in Ramah. What's that? Well, Ramah was a town about five miles north of Jerusalem that was adjacent to a highway that eventually led to Babylon. And so, verse 18 comes from the prophet Jeremiah who wrote during the exile. And so, these boys are taking the long walk from their homeland to Babylon and their mothers in Ramah weeping will never see them again. Refusing to be comforted because they are no more. In 1824, the French artist Cognier painted of the massacre of the innocents. It depicts a terrified mother cowering in a dark corner, muffling the cries of her small infant while Herod's slaughter rages. And, and most painters show the carnage, but Cogne exercises artistic restraint. He focuses on one petrified mother who knows she's about ready to lose her child. And she envelops the doomed child her bare feet reveal how vulnerable they are. There's no place to hide. She's cornered. Another mother is seen carrying her own children down the stairs to the left, running for their lives. And just when we're about ready to judge Herod for this evil, Kanye forces everything to the background to draw our attention to this terrified woman's face. That face staring at us as if we were one of Herod's soldiers. And we have found her, and she glares at us in horror. Kanye makes us party to the massacre of the innocents. And these verses force us to examine ourselves and to consider why would this woman be so scared of us? And how have we aided and abetted those who want Jesus dead? These verses hold us accountable 
These verses ask and want to know how much of Herod still lives in our hearts in anger, in bitterness. And we say, oh, I would never do that. Maybe not. Or maybe we just don't have the resources and unchecked power to pull it off. Either way, Scripture is clear. Romans 3, 19 and 23. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And just as I'm about ready to judge Herod, I'm reminded of James chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. The fact of the matter is I'm no different from Herod. I hope you've been thinking about who you're going to be inviting for Christmas Eve. Um, I thought I'd give you a 30, 45 second preview. Here's what I'm going to say so that you can make your decision. It's been said that Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, Jesus is not the reason for the season. I'm the reason for the season. We are. All the sin and shame that we bear for all our wrongdoings made it necessary for Christ to come in the form of a man born of a virgin. I mean, right from birth, scarred with a heart that needed cleansing, my very existence meant that a substitutionary sacrifice would be required on my behalf. See, church family, what I'm trying to tell you is that the, the baby in the manger came to bring us the worst news ever, and until we accept the worst news ever, we're never going to believe the best news ever. So who shall rescue me from the Herod within? Verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's some good news. What's that mean? Well, it's from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 where Israel is called God's firstborn son. But as you continue to read Hosea chapter 11, you will see that Israel was actually God's wayward firstborn son. Last week we learned of complaining, whining, grumbling Israel. A firstborn son who having been rescued wanted to go back. But Matthew speaks of a truer and better firstborn son, Jesus who having escaped to Egypt, returned from Egypt. And this son will act on Israel's behalf and do all that Israel could not do. And whereas Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. For Jesus is the new and better Israel, the new and better firstborn son, the new and better Moses, as Moses was called and delivered by a baby-killing Pharaoh only to return to deliver God's people, so Jesus will flee Herod 
only to return to freely give his life. Herod's death warrant for Christ will not expire at Herod's death. It will follow Christ all the way to the cross. But Jesus makes it clear. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So unlike those babies, Jesus will not be the victim of organized evil. The ruler of this world has no claim on him. And why? Because I have called my son out of Egypt. Don't you see what these verses are telling us? Jesus escaped then so that in choosing not to escape later, all through faith in him might escape forever. That's gospel news. That's our Christmas hope. Not even Herod can thwart the plan of God. And that's the message we are called to remember. And it's in the darkness where we often ask, God, where are you? Where are you? As if he's way, way up there and we're way, way down here. And, and that's really a senseless question. It's like asking, how much does the color yellow weigh? How tall is the number four? You see, the message of Christmas is not that the God of the universe is way, way, way up there. It's about the God who is here, who sees us, who is standing right next to us. He's in it with us. In 2001, he was crushed beneath the concrete of the Twin Towers. And he went down with United 93. And in 04, he too was swept off his feet in the tsunami. And he was with the 334 adults and children in the Belsen Massacre. And in 2010, he was with the Haitians in the earthquake. And he was at Columbine and Sandy Hook and Las Vegas. And in that gruesome clinic where every one of those babies were massacred by Kermit Gosnell. And Jesus was there. He promised, I will be with you always. He's never left us. And after all evil had done to Christ, he's still stronger. For evil's worst cannot keep Christ in the grave. That's our Christmas hope. You believe that? So in the movie, The Nativity Story, there's a wonderful scene at the conclusion of that movie about the birth of the Christ child. And it depicts the horror of this. One of Herod's soldiers seeking to kill any baby who might be hiding in the stable cave looks into the cave, the one where Jesus was born. And that soldier sees an empty stone manger with a cloth left behind. And it's a brilliant image because the combination of the cave and the manger and the cloth suggests another scene, one that will come 30-something years later. You remember? Easter morning when Peter and John race to an open and empty tomb 
The place where Jesus had been laid is now empty except for the linen cloths that had wrapped the body of the crucified Christ. The manger was empty, a sign that one day the tomb would be empty. As Isaiah the prophet says, for I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. They shall not be remembered and come to mind. That's our hope. So last week, I was here worshiping with um, the third and fourth graders. And we sang this great song in the singing portion of the worship service. And he called my name, and I came out of that grave. That's good news. And I had about a half a dozen 11-year-old boys in the corner during small group time, discussion time. Only there wasn't much discussion because I was preaching at him. I just preached and preached and preached and preached. They were, they were just kind of glazed over after they were done. But I kept preaching. I said, gentlemen, I called them gentlemen. I said, gentlemen, I said, I know it may be hard for some of you to believe, but I used to be 11 years of age. Their eyes opened up like pop and one of them said, you mean back in 1940? I said, no, not 1940. But we sang that song. He called my name. And I came out of the grave. I'm about to create the new heavens and the new earth. The former things shall not be remembered. I would not presume to know your pain, but I know that you are not alone. And as mysterious as the incarnation is, so is the mystery of how our great God can use the weeping and woundedness of those broken by the sins of others to reveal the power of the gospel. And Matthew's Christmas promises that one day, if you be in Christ and they be in Christ, you will see your lost child again. You will see your lost parent again. You will see your lost spouse again. You will see your lost loved one again. And when that day comes, you will forget that they'd ever been lost. Because the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. You will say, I don't remember my ache. I don't. This is our Christmas hope. And why? Because I've called my son out of Egypt. That's why. Jesus sees us and stands with us and is in us, and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He who escaped Herod, who chose not to escape the cross so that through faith all of us could escape into his arms forever. That's good news. Listen. Listen. He is not the reason for the season. We are the reason for the season. Jesus is the response to that reason. Amen.